Hello there, I'm Jordan Rich, and you're tuned to On Mike with Jordan Rich on all podcast platforms all over the world. And I want to say, first of all, we're fast approaching our 100th podcast, and I want to thank all of you for listening and contributing, and certainly thank my many guests. People of late have asked me how to get in touch. A couple of ideas on that. You can email me, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at chartproductions.com. And that's where the podcast is produced, chartproductions.com. That's our website. You can also go to Facebook and just type in Jordan Rich Show. Take it right to the main page that has a podcast feature each and every week. Well, today, my longtime friend and a frequent overnight radio guest of mine, Andrew Fielding, is here. He wrote a beautiful bio about his mom and her success in the early days of television. The book is entitled The Lucky Strike Papers, Journeys Through My Mother's Television Past. And it includes conversations with early TV pioneers, such as Maury Amsterdam, Merv Griffin, Milton DeLug, Kay Kaiser, and so many more. It's a rich history of the early days of television and a loving portrait of a very talented lady, the late Sue Bennett. As I said in the introduction, our guest, Andrew Fielding, and I have done this before, and I've been a fan of his on radio. He's been a guest and a contributor to WBZ, where I've worked for many years. But it's lovely to have you on the podcast talk about some of my favorite people, including your mom. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Jordan, and thank you for that uh, nice suit. Those nice words, I appreciate it very much. It's always a great pleasure talking with you. The Lucky Strike Papers takes us back to the golden age and even pre-golden age of television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's subtitled Journeys Through My Mother's Television Past. Uh, Obviously, there's the impetus to write this, but uh, when you set out to do it, were there discoveries you didn't expect to find? Oh, many. uh, A great many. I actually started writing it in the 1970s. I was, uh, I think, 21 when I started writing it, which happened to be the same age that my mother was when she started singing with Kay Kaiser's orchestra on NBC in early television. And I, I just wanted to start kind of touching base with any number of people that my mother had performed with in early television, roughly the years 1949 to 1952. And so I started making phone calls. I would talk to my mother. I, would, I actually took a lot of her uh, memorabilia. I was living in Rhode Island at the time. And, and kind of gathered it all together. Uh, it, it is a subject I have been interested in, you know, for, for since early childhood. Um, and I thought I would write something about it. And so I kind of uh, started making little forays into this past via the people that she worked with, the singers, the comedians, the band leaders, uh, the writers, the directors. I wasn't quite sure what I was writing at the time. I thought it might be a uh, a lengthy magazine-type piece. But after a couple of years, I said, well, this is certainly turning into a kind of book. So I kept interviewing more and more people and uh, finally finished the interviewing about seven years after the time I uh, started doing it. Um, spent a couple of years trying to place it with uh, uh, a publisher. Uh, this is back in 1985, 1986. And uh, did not succeed in that regard. There were a couple of publishers who expressed interest, but ultimately it wasn't published. And then, but it, it kind of hung over me the uh, uh, the whole subject, a sense of I, I, a sense of incompletion, I suppose, in terms of the project. My mother passed away in 2001, um, and then a few years later, uh, I said, "I've got, I've got to, I, I have to go back to this." And I interviewed more people. Uh, interviewed people I had interviewed originally back in, uh, say, the late 70s, and started reorganizing the entire book, 
rethinking the entire book. Uh, there was so much material that I liked in it that I, I, I just didn't want to put it on the shelf for good. Right. And so, I, I, again, I did more legwork, more interviews, rewrote much of the book, and it did find uh, a, a publisher at the time, a small press that focuses uh, on um, uh, popular culture, television, movies. It's called Bear Manor Media. I think you've had a number of authors uh, mm. Uh, from Bear Manor Media. Morgan White has a book out uh, on Bear Manor, and Mel Simons has many books out on Bear Manor. So I was delighted that it found a home in uh, 2007. And then uh, over the past few years, I, I well, I figured I'd go back to it. Why not? And so I, I did some rewriting on it, did some more research, uh, did some uh, additions to the book. And so a new edition of the book came out at, uh, uh, at the start of this year. Uh, in uh, January of uh, end of January mm. 2019. You know, uh, your mother was in my world one of the top voiceover artists. I did not know her as much as a singer. But take us back to the early days of Sue Bennett, Sue Benjamin, as she was known, mm -hmm. and take us back. How does someone achieve what she's achieving in that era? I mean, how did she go into television and her career? Well, she was attending Syracuse University. And she did a lot of theater there, even though she was an English major, and she had thought of uh, becoming a writer. But she also sang uh, with some orchestras in Syracuse. She performed in theater at Syracuse, including uh, in a play with her classmate Jerry Stiller. Uh, she graduated from college at the end of 1948 and thought she would pursue uh, uh, a show business career. And very quickly, uh, within, I guess, about a month, uh, she... Uh, got a uh, fairly small role in a Broadway play called Small Wonder, which starred uh, the great Tom Ewell. It was a, a musical kind of comedy review. And so she had a, a, a you know, a, a, a minor kind of role, a, a singing role in the play, but she also was understudied to three of the play's stars, one of whom was uh, Alice Pierce, who I'm sure you remember from playing Mrs. Kravitz on mm, Bewitched. Absolutely. Great character actress, yeah. Great character actress. And uh, so it, it turns out, in fact, she had to once uh, substitute for Alice Pierce on one of the nights she was in the play. While she was in the play, she appeared on a program on CBS uh, for kind of up-and-coming performers, a show called Places, Please, hosted by a gentleman named Barry Wood. And then uh, not long after that, she appeared again on Places, Please. It was on, again, on, on CBS very short show, like a 15-minute show, I think, two or three times a week. 15-minute shows were very big in early television, and lots of musical programs were done in this interesting 15-minute format. The play ended in January of uh, 1949, Small Wonder, and a friend of hers from the play was singing on a television show on the Dumont Network. I guess you'd say it was television's fourth network. The big right. two were NBC and CBS, and there was also the Dumont Network. And so this singer from Small Wonder was singing on a particular show on uh, on the Dumont uh, uh, the Dumont station, the local uh, uh, Dumont uh, affiliate in New York. And she told my mother, said, you know, you should audition for the show. And so my mother did. And it's kind of an interesting period. Some shows at this point were now crossing over into the the network realm. Shows were fed from the uh, New York affiliate to 
the, the small, relatively small network of stations that were set up around the country. So this was, I think, around mid-January where this uh, network hookup became available. And so a number of Dumont programs or programs on the local Dumont affiliate were then sent out over the network. And so she was on this show, the Stan Shaw Show, which featured the singer from Small Wonder, a musical trio called the Alan Logan Trio, and a tremendous singer who I think you'll probably know. Uh, he had one of the biggest hits in the big band era, um, a song called Marie with uh, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, Jack Leonard. Oh, yes. A beautiful, wonderful song. He was singing on this program. Mm -hmm. And so she was only on the show for, you know, several weeks, and then she got her own program on Dumont, a five-night-a-week show with that same trio from the Stan Shaw Show, uh, the Alan Logan Trio. And so it kind of, one thing sort of, you know, led into the other, and suddenly for several months, she had this nightly show, again, a 15-minute show, Monday through Friday evenings on the Dumont Network. And then after that, she was part of a show on CBS uh, called Inside USA with Chevrolet in 1949 as one of the Ray Charles Singers, uh, the vocal group, the Ray Charles Singers, which uh, they were famous for being with Perry Como for many years. And then at the end of that year, she joined Kay Kaiser's uh, television show, which was just getting underway. It was in, uh, it, uh, starting at the end of uh, 1949. She became one of his featured vocalists. Mm. And uh, so then for the next couple of years, uh, it was Kay Kaiser until the end of 1950. Then she joined Your Hit Parade, a very big show at the time. was on that show in 1951 and 52, and also made a number of guest regular guest appearances on other network shows, uh, during the same time she was on your hit parade. Mm. So uh, uh, it was, uh, I know for her, a very exciting, um, uh, kind of stimulating time, this, this new medium that uh, people were still kind of figuring out and still kind of making their way through. It was, you know, by 1952, it was much more popular as a, as a medium, but it, it was still fairly young at that time. And at the end of 1952, uh, my mother was on a show in New York, a local New York show starring Maury Amsterdam and featuring a, a musical ensemble uh, led by uh, Milton DeLug, a very well-known uh, uh, musician who was on Broadway Open House, really the first late-night television show earlier on NBC. He was later on The Gong Show. I don't know if you remember him, uh, uh, the Milton DeLug band on The Gong Show. I sure do. Milton DeLug and his, I think his band was a thug, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so after the the Maury Amsterdam program on the local New York station, uh, my folks then moved to the Boston area. And in fact, my parents had gotten married in 1949, so most of her television career uh, was during also the first years of my parents' marriage. Right. Then, they, then they moved to Boston, and she took up a Boston career in television, radio, and then in voiceovers. Sue Bennett, the subject of the book, The Lucky Strike Papers, which is Journeys Through My Mother's Television Past by Andrew Lee Fielding, and it's a retrospective, wonderful history of the very early days of live television. It was all live, and so interesting that these performers had to be on their game, and things would happen, Andrew. Uh, we all know about the famous dramas on TV where the dead body would get up and walk away. But... <laughs> It would happen on musical shows, too, right? I mean, anything oh, could happen. Um, uh, I was interviewing a, a, a wonderful director. Most of the interviews, as I mentioned, took place in the 1970s, 1980s. In the early 80s, I was in California doing a number of interviews, and I spoke with uh, Buzz Kulik. I don't know if you know that name. He um, 
is perhaps best known. He did both motion pictures and a lot of television. He did a number of Twilight Zones, um, The Defenders. Uh, he did a lot of live uh, drama in early television. Also directed the great and kind of landmark TV, made-for-TV film, Brian's Song. Um, uh, oh, in sure. the, I guess that was either 69 or 70, right. maybe 71. Uh, and he told me a story how... Uh, he was the director of the Kay Kaiser show on NBC, 1949 and 1950, and he was talking about a group called uh, the Honey Dreamers, which was a vocal group on Kay Kaiser's show, group of five singers. And he said in the middle of their song, they are not aware of it, but their microphone, which was above, above them, totally went out. So they're singing and not knowing that nothing is being transmitted, and Buzz Kulik says that he's, you know, he's, 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 you know, talking to the people through the headphones and saying, get, get the, get the so and so. He mentioned some guy to get out there and, you know, uh, and, and put a, a, a mic out there on a stand, you know, and he can see the guy. He, he, he's shaking his head. He, you know, he's like too nervous to walk out on this live show. And so he, Buzz Kulik tells this other guy, you know, I think it was the floor manager, get, get that thing out there, get the, get the microphone out there, and so. He said the guy didn't just walk out, put the mic uh, in front of the Honey Dreamers and leave. He he tiptoed out, you know, just, but, you know, he's on camera. <laughs> and so he's he's tiptoeing out, yeah. he puts the microphone, and then he tiptoes back out, you know, off the stage. And those kinds of things, you know, happened uh, quite a bit. I talked with Arthur Penn, the, the, the great film director, Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, so many other films. And he did a lot of work in early television. And he used to say that, or he told me that, uh, you know, cameras uh, in a given show, drama shows he would do, would just suddenly stop working. So you've mapped out this entire show, um, and suddenly one of the cameras has, has gone on, uh, you know, on the fritz. And so he said they had a system. You'd hit this button. I don't know what year he was talking about. It was probably a little later on in the 50s. You'd hit this button, and it was like this fire department they'd take out the one camera, and right outside the door where there was another camera waiting, and they would bring it in and attach it, and things would get back on track. Mm. But these kind of fallback um, uh, uh, methods of dealing with, mm. the, with the technical, the potential technical uh, uh, problems that would happen. I spoke with Paul Bogart, who was later a, a big director, I did a lot of movies and was did All in the Family, for example. Oh, yeah. And he, he told me that once he was doing a show, and the entire soundboard burst into flames. <laughs> Literally was, was on fire and smoking. And so suddenly the audio to the show was completely cut out. And, you know, with, with, with kind of a, a sense of calm, he said, well, we've just got to get this fixed. And so he kept continuing to direct the cameras by reading the lips of the performers. Oh, man. To see, to, and, and then, you know, ultimately they yeah. came in, they pulled all the cords, and they brought the sound back. But that kind of precariousness, yeah. I think, was very much a part of uh, early television. Yeah, it made um, the performers really shine because they had to be good. They had to be on time and their cues had to be right, even though they were, things were going to go wrong. I love that about uh, that era. It's uh, it's exciting. Well, you know, my mother used to tell me that when she was on the Dumont Network, uh, she had to learn a lot of new songs every week. Uh, this was 1949. She wasn't quite sure how many people were watching at that point, so she wasn't terribly nervous about doing the show, whereas later, 
uh, on, say, Kay Kaiser's show, which was a big sponsored show, the Hit Parade, which was, you know, had Lucky Strike as the uh, sponsor, the American Tobacco Company. Um, those were big, you know, big kind of shows done in big theaters. Um, she wasn't sure how many, you know, people were watching uh, on the uh, Dumont Network, so there was a very kind of casual feel. But she did have to learn a lot of new songs every week. And that got her, she told me, uh, a little bit nervous. Mm. And every now and then she told me she would miss a lyric, and so she would improvise by doing another lyric that would rhyme with the <laughs> lyric she had just <laughs> kind of made up. I can understand that, having trouble memorizing lyrics and lines and plays. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and sometimes that happens. Let me let me take you back, uh, before we play another cut, uh, mm-hmm. a sample of her singing with Kay Kaiser. And mm-hmm. again, this is before my time, but I'm very familiar with who he was, the College of Musical Knowledge and all that, right. wearing the, the motorboard hat. This was a big deal, right, to to work with an organization like his, and she was very much a part of that show for a short time, but still, uh, talk a little bit about Kay Kaiser and his impact. He was a fascinating guy. He had been huge in radio and a lot of shows in this early period of television. They did come over from radio. They would take the existing radio programs like Kay Kaiser's quiz and music show, the College of Musical Knowledge, and they would... Uh, transform it for television. Previously just heard, they would have the performers acting out uh, clues on camera for the contestants. But he was a very big force uh, with this mixture of uh, of uh, comedy and, and music and quiz. And uh, I think it's fair to say that his greatest success in broadcasting was on uh, his radio show, which was on for, I don't know, maybe nine or ten years before he came to television. Uh, but the television show was popular and uh, uh, was very expensive. There was the, you know, the, the whole orchestra there, a substantial cast um, and crew. And the show started in December of 1949, went to uh, the end of that first season, June of 1950, came back in the fall. My mother was on the, on it, you know, on both uh, seasons. Uh, came back on the fall for just a few months, and then at the end of that show, Kay Kaiser said, I'm done. I'm leaving show business. And he was, I think, they called him the old professor, but he was, I think, only 45 years old when he retired. <laughs> and he had, he had been hugely successful, a lot of number one hit records in the 30s and 40s, and he just left show business and didn't look back. And he did uh, a number of things in his home state of uh, North Carolina worked on establishing a public television station there, did uh, uh, projects for the community, and became uh, deeply devoted to Christian science and um, became a uh, Christian science practitioner, uh, ultimately, and Christian science uh, became an uh, extremely uh, important part of his life. And in fact, he came to Boston in, I think, 19... 19- 73 or 74 to head up the film and broadcasting department at the Christian Science Church, at the Mother Church in Boston. So he was in Boston for a while in the 1970s, mm. and then he later uh, you know, went back to, uh, to uh, North Carolina. But a fascinating guy who just, you know, huge star who at the age of 45 just said, okay, <laughs> I'm done. You know, at this point in our chit-chat, Andrew, I need to come clean and say thank you to the Fielding family and Sue Bennett and her husband 
for more reasons than just the joy of entertainment that she brought. Your dad, Dr. Waldo Fielding, is responsible for me in many, many ways. He brought me into this world as the uh, obstetrician to the stars. So I want to say thank you. I, I just love the fact that my dad delivered you and that he was your mom's uh, mom's doctor. I just uh, yep. that, that always just delights me. And it's delightful to know that he's doing so well. Uh, he's a venerable, what, 90? Coming up to 98. 98. God bless yeah. him. Yeah. He's, and he's been a performer in his own right. Uh, but a great doctor. So let's talk briefly. Let's talk uh, briefly about a letter that I read in the book. That's really cool. It's a fan letter to your mom by someone whose name would become rather well known shortly thereafter. Uh, yes, that's true. And it's really funny because th- this took place when I just started to work on this project in 1977. Um, and I, as I had mentioned earlier, I gathered together. Uh, so many things of my mother's records, newspaper clippings, magazines, uh, and, and she didn't mind. I, you know, I, I think she was kind of perplexed periodically why I was so <laughs> maybe fixated on uh, on her career. I mean, she had wonderful, great memories from uh, working in early television. But every now and then, as the years were going on and on, she'd look at me, and you know, there would be kind of a quizzical look, like. I'm not quite sure why you're so interested in this. But anyway, uh, one of the things that I took uh, uh, from her when I gathered all this memorabilia together was a letter she had received in uh, 1950 from a 16-year-old boy in uh, Albany, New York, and he wrote her this lengthy, typed uh, uh, fan letter. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just read a couple of sentences. He says, Dear Miss Bennett, to begin with, let me explain my purpose in writing. I am an ardent booster of yours and have been since I first saw and heard you sing on the Kay Kaiser Show. We have no TV set at home, but every Thursday night about 9, I tear down to my buddy's house to see you on the College of Musical Knowledge. Now, that that, goes on for uh, quite a bit in the letter, big fan letter uh, uh, from uh, from this young boy. I like how he says, we have no TV set at home. This is 1950. And you're really still in that early period where a lot of people did not have TV sets, and would go to their friends' homes and would, you know, kind of gather at the house of, you know, the friend that had the TV. So it still is this early period. But anyway, I, I, I took the letter, and it was signed uh, uh, Jim Hutton, and I didn't think anything of the name, and I tried to say, well, I'd like to talk to him and track him down and see if he remembers, you know, writing the letter. Nothing, nothing clicked to me uh, in terms of the name. And I made some phone calls, and his address was on the letter in Albany. And as I recall, this is now, you know, 41 years ago, 42 years ago, uh, so my memory's not all that good. But as I recall, I found, uh, by making a number of calls to Albany, who lived in that house now? And I found out it was not the Hutton family. And I said, well, do you know where I could get in touch with, with, with Jim Hutton? And the person I spoke to said, well, sure, you know, he's out in Hollywood. And I said, huh, well, why would, what's he doing out there? And she said, well, you know, Jim Hutton, you know, the actor, Jim Hutton. Oh, oh. <laughs> so it was, it was just quite startling. I, I think a lot of folks will remember him in uh, the show, which I think had started just a couple of years before. Um, Ellery Queen yeah. on oh, NBC. Yes. yes, and of course his son Timothy went on to big. big he's still success. working and uh, ordinary people. He's still working in the industry. But I thought that was really cute. I mean, you never know. 
in this business, whether it's 50 or 60 or 70 years ago or today, who's out there listening who might That's be the, exactly right. the next star? I just thought that was cute. And let oh, me well, add, I'm sorry, well, go ahead. I just wanted to say we were unable to actually set up an interview. I went through his press spokesperson, and we tried to set it up, and a couple of times it didn't work, but his press spokesman simply told me, he said, well, I, you know, Jim was just so, you know, loved hearing, uh, you know, about your phone call. He said, and told me he only sent two fan letters in his whole life, one to your mother and one to Ted Williams. Oh, so. <laughs> wow, that's good company. Uh, yeah. uh, before we wrap up, let's talk briefly. Uh, you did, interviewed so many people and mm-hmm. touched base with these legends, but the one that fascinates me, of course, is Maury Amsterdam, the joke machine, and the fact that he worked with your mom is cool. But what was he like? Was he, was he quip after quip, or was he, like a lot of comics, a little on the quiet side? I'm curious. I'd, I'd say he wasn't doing joke after joke when I when I spoke with him. I spoke with him at his home, I, as I recall, in Beverly Hills. It wasn't a hugely long interview, maybe, maybe a half hour or so. And he was very nice, uh, very kind. My mother... Uh, had a wonderful time being on his show in 1952, uh, along with, uh, again, the Milton Delug uh, uh, musical group. Uh, he was very nice, but no, he wasn't doing rat-a-tat uh, uh, jokes. I remember when I called him up, I, I said to him uh, on the phone, I said, uh, Mr. Amsterdam, uh, my name is Andrew Fielding. He said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. You know, so I don't know. I just thought that was a funny quip. Yeah, that's so. a, you expect something like that from something, the yeah. bane of Mel Cooley at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was very nice and told me some great stories about uh, early television. Mm. And uh, I found it interesting that for a local show, he had been a big national star at that point in television. Um, he did the uh, show on Dumont for a while. I think it was the. First, it was the Golden Goose Cafe. It was kind of a fictional cafe. Then it became, I think, the Silver Swan Cafe. Art Carney was on the show. But this was still a New York local show. They used uh, really network performers on a local show, which I found very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Amsterdam, Milton DeLug had uh, uh, you know, done a lot of network TV, and my mother had done a, done a significant amount of network TV at that point. And so interesting to me that the local New York station would choose to do this. It was five mornings a week right after the Today Show, and I know my mother had just a wonderful mm-hmm. time uh, 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 being on that show and being around his great sense of humor and playing the cello, which he did, and you know, it sounded like the show was great fun. Well, the Lucky Strike Papers, there's tons of stuff that we haven't even touched on that is really fun for fans and historians and lovers of television and understanding the fact that television in its infancy was a wholly different medium and a wholly different animal, but it was exciting. And what a great tribute to your mom, who I had the pleasure of meeting once or twice. And again, when I was just starting out, she was and is considered one of the top voiceover artists of all time in this market and beyond. Just one thing very quickly. Sure. Since it's the new edition of the book, the old edition is still on Amazon.com. If you or if you know, I'm not trying to really you know push people to buy it, but if you go to Amazon, you want to look for the revised edition. It says it on you know oh. on the description that it's okay. the revised edition. Cool. So you go to Amazon, revised edition of the Lucky Strike Papers: right. Journeys Through My Mother's Television Past by Andrew Lee Fielding. Andrew, thank you so much. Sharing time with you, whether it's on the cloud or on the air, it's all the same to me, is really a delight. And continued success with not only the book, but all the working, all the writing and all the cool stuff you're up to. Thank you.
Thank you, Jordan. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the invitation to join you on the podcast. And it's always a pleasure to, to speak with you and to listen to you. I just uh, thank you so much. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.